Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. So at this point, we're jumping into chapter 11, and really, we're here at the very end of the class. I mean, we've got this month, which there's a lot of breaks this month. We're out the 11th for Veterans Day, and then we've got Thanksgiving break, which is a nice stretch. After we come back from Thanksgiving, we've only got like two weeks. So we're really in the the home stretch here. So um, in fact, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, six more chapters, and we're done. So it's going to go by very quickly. Um, real quick aside, what did you guys think about Shark Tank? I know we watched it on Thursday a little bit. Did you guys? So I know some of you hadn't seen it before. For those who haven't seen it before, what's your takeaway from it? Did you have? Did you like it? Didn't like it? Didn't get it? What's? What's kind of feedback can you give me on that? Nobody's got any feedback. I like Shark Tank. You like Shark Tank? Yeah, I like it too. Um, it's, I think it's a great way to, in a very short window, get a glimpse into what it's like in, in real business. I mean, these guys are being pitched a, a viable business, and they have to determine, is there value here or not? And if there's value, uh, do I want to be a part of that or not? And so they're, they're trying to, in a very short window, you're talking five, ten minutes, determine, you know, is this something I want to be a part of or not, and, and how can I help or, or not help this business. While I'm thinking about it, uh, let me take roll real quick. Tyler, Miss Hood, got you. Two Carsons. Uh, let's see. Quentin, hello. Ryan, Caleb, got you. Um, Octavia, Paige, got you. Peyton, uh, Renee, Enrique, and Rebecca. Okay, good deal. All right, so chapter 11 is dealing with creating products and pricing strategies to meet customers' needs. It's not enough to have a great product. Um, you've got to get that great product into the hands of the consumer. Um, how many of you guys have actually clicked on a Facebook ad and bought something? One, two, three? So roughly like only 10 or 15% of the class. That's not even that much. Uh, how many people's in here? About 15. So about 20% of the class, something like that. So math is really fuzzy in the morning for me. Um, but <clears throat> so very low numbers, you know, and I have, but it's a rare, th- I mean, people do it, but it is rare for people to click on an ad and go all the way through to uh, the end user. And it's actually a funneling process. So when you, when you buy something on social media, um, they're showing that ad to a lot of people, right? A lot of people see the ad. And then you get something magic that happens, a click. That is like super exciting from a marketing standpoint. To show an ad to somebody and they actually click on it, that, that kind of engagement, that is what Facebook sells to the people. They say, if you do ads with us, you're going to get X amount of views that's going to result in Y amount of clicks. That Those clicks, you know, some people are just going to look around, then ultimately what's going to happen you're going to get Z, uh, the, these X, Y's, and Z's are going to come together. Z is the actual purchase of a product. And it's a smaller and smaller number. So, like, out of 100 people that might look at an ad, they see it on the Facebook feed, probably 10, 10, I don't know, 5 to 15 people might click on it. Okay, they click on it. 
Here's what happens though, I, and I'm aware of this now, and I, some of you might be aware of it. When you click on an ad, you're validating that I like to see that type of, type of ad in my feeds. You're saying, hey, this ad is interesting enough to me for me to click on it. And so when you click on it, Facebook says, okay, I see what you're doing here. You're saying, I like, you know, I like this. And what you're basically telling them is, show me more of this thing. And so when I, I, I bought a couple things this past year, I, I've been looking for more and more healthier snacks and types of products. So I bought, uh, has anybody ever heard of a product called, I think it's called Bitlong. It's like a beef jerky, like whole piece of meat that you carve off of. It's like a, it's basically like a beef jerky type product. I had not heard of it till recently, but I, bought, I went to a company, bought some of that off a of Facebook ad. Really good stuff, by the way. And then another one does these low-carb, high-protein bars. I bought some of those. But as I was clicking on these ads and reading about it, I started seeing more and more stuff in my feed of all these different products and services that were all geared towards healthy snacks. And one of them was like, like chicken skins. Have you seen this snack? It's like instead of, instead of potato chips, they're selling chicken skins. For keto people, ugh. I know, but like, I just can't imagine opening a bag. Like, you got pork skins, right? So, so pork skins. This is chicken skins, and it just doesn't seem like something I'd want to eat a bag of. What do you think, Rebecca? You in there? So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, I was, I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this, but apparently, it's it's viable and good enough for somebody to to produce it and sell it. So. But yeah, this is a typical flow, flow through that they want to see. And on, you may have heard the term click through before, before. And the idea is you want to lead a consumer down a path. It's not enough, like I said, to have a great product or service. You've got to be able to get that consumer to engage. And then not only do you have to engage, you've got to click through to the point of fulfillment. And so like they actually measure how many clicks does it take to get to the end of the, the, a sale. And so, you know, there might be that first click, that's one. And then when they get to the website, how long now does it take to get to the end point? Like I recently, within the past two months or so, started doing this Panera unlimited coffee thing. And I like it, you know, it's, it's I only, right now I'm on a free trial, but it's $9 a month and you get free coffee. But when I go into the kiosk, I actually walk into the store and they have a kiosk set up. I swear it takes 12 clicks to get to the free coffee. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So like you go in, you push the screen, then you enter your number, then you have to validate your email, and then you click on the, the program you want, which is the free coffee thing, hit the coffee, add to cart, and then they'll offer you like a muffin or something. You have to turn that down, and then there's like three or four more clicks before you get to the final thing. Yeah. And so it's a process. On the Internet, you want to stream like that. You want like... One, two, three clicks from here, and that's it. Because every click the consumer has to do, they have to reevaluate, do I want to proceed with this to make it happen? So it needs to be very easy for the consumer to check out and, and buy that product. Um, in fact, Amazon knows this. Have you ever, has anybody ever used the Buy It Now feature? You I, love, I love Amazon. I love Amazon, too. Amazon, it's a company that, you know, I have a love-hate relationship for, but it's way more love than hate. You know, it's like something in me doesn't want to root for the, the overlords, you know, like I like the little guy. But they're awesome. I mean, you know, like Amazon, they just, you know, you push a button and boom, you know. I, I do, I would say a strong 60 to 80% of my Christmas shopping is Amazon-focused, you know. It's just so convenient, you know. And uh, I don't know. I just, but I still, I like 
the idea of, of helping the little guy too, but the Amazon has just got such a dominance. So. But yeah, so this chapter is about creating products and pricing strategies to meet customers' uh, needs. On that Amazon note, though, um, you'll notice if you put stuff in your cart and leave it there and come back later, what will it tell you? Some of the, some of the items in your cart have changed prices since last time you were here, right? They constantly manipulate the pricing information. Why do you think that is? Why does it go from 1998 per unit to 1977 per unit? It's, it's all about notifications, right? So if I've got notifications turned on, or uh, even if I don't have it turned on, if I go into that cart, it's going to be a notification at the top that says, this item that you expressed interest in has changed price. And so it reminds me, oh, I was interested in that item. It's a prompt to get me re-engaging in that item and uh, purchase consideration. What's up? I know, like my wife, I, I mean, I'm not as, I don't know, I want to say I'm not as bad as my wife from a shopaholic standpoint, but we all like consumerism, you know, like I, I don't always have to have something coming, but it does give you this anticipation of looking forward to that delivery in the mailbox, you know, there is a, there is an addictive thing to that, this, this euphoria feel of, oh, I've got this item that I've purchased and I'm waiting to get here and I open up my toy and it's not as fun as the kids playing with it on TV, right, you know. You ever experienced that? You got something and you think, oh, and then you get it home and it's like, where's the magic, you know? So, yeah, and it's, it's like that every time, you know? It's like, okay, this is cool, but what, what's next, you know? Um, but, yeah, so we've got to figure out ways to meet the customer's needs and meet the customer where they're at. That's what this chapter really gets at the heart at. So what is the, what is the marketing concept in relationship building? How do managers create a marketing strategy? What is the marketing mix? How do consumers and organizations make buying decisions? What are the five basic forms of consumer and business market segmentation? What is a product and how is it classified? How do organizations create new products? What are the stages of a product life cycle? That's a big one. What strategies are used for pricing products and what are the future trends? And what trends are occurring in product and pricing? And so a lot of good information. And um, have you ever bought a product and you use it and you think, wow, I can't believe this was so cheap. Have you ever done that? Has anything come to mind like that? Like you just can't, you're blown away with how cheap it was to get that you can't believe it was not twice as much. Maybe, yeah. I don't know, has anything else come to mind? I don't know if this counts, but I went to a book sale one time. Okay. And I got like, it was like you bought like a $10 bag and you filled up as many books as you wanted. Yeah. And I got 33 books for $10. That's excellent. I, I love going to book sales. The last one I went to was the Friends of Wayne County Public Library. They had a sale, and I collect Eastern Press leather-bound editions. And if you don't know, Eastern Press is like one of the most expensive leather-bound brands you can get um, for new books. Uh, there's, of course, like old editions you can get that are very expensive. But anyway, Eastern Press volume is going to cost you 50 to $500, depending on what it is. And I go to this Friends of Wayne County Public Library, and they said they're like soft cover books are like one to two dollars, hard covers are like three to four dollars, something like that, depending. And I walk, I'm looking around, looking around, looking around. I'm kind of getting rushed because my kids are with me and my wife's with me, and they're like ready to go. Last thing I found in there was four Easton Press hardcover editions for four dollars a piece. I was like, oh my, I can't believe it. I couldn't believe I found these four editions. So I scooped them up. 
And if I'd bought those books new, they probably would have been sixty to eighty dollars a piece, brand new. So, though, I love when I find that stuff. So, um, but yeah, when it comes to pricing, though, like some the point I was getting about buying something that you know you felt like you got a really good deal on. Sometimes people will underprice their products, and they they're not extracting as much value as they could get for it. So, you really want to like I heard a guy talking yesterday on a business podcast, and he was talking about he would buy. I don't know if you guys have tried to buy a car in the past year or not, but vehicle demand is way up. Car prices are way up. And he said he would buy, he would select in-demand cars and basically do car arbitrage, which is where you buy a car in one location in the country very cheaply and sell it in another location more expensively. He said he would buy like trucks for $7,000 in one part of the country and sell them somewhere else for $14,000, you know, just do a few things to them. And I said, that's pretty interesting stuff. So anyway, so let's talk about famous product mascots then and now. Um, so some of the stuff's from the book, and it references uh, sections of the book. But with, uh, within the customer satisfaction paragraph in section 11.1, a 97% customer satisfaction claim is retold from Geico, uh, well-known for Geico mascot. How important are these typical animated or illustrated figures to the success of any company and their brands. And there is a, a video, but I'm not gonna watch it right now. But what when you see a video or a mascot um, for a brand, does that do anything for you guys? Like Mr. Clean or the Geico Lizard? Um, does that does that resonate with you guys at all? Yeah. It does, yeah? yeah. You know how they took the woman off the serve? And the, your mama? The yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. What's your opinion of that? What do you mean? Like, you know when you do it for the server, you just see them as a lady? Yeah. You see Aunt Jemima, they find out, like, the name changed too. Uh, I don't know what the server called now, but it's just, like, a lot harder to find. Is it? Did so they change the name? Yeah. Well, um, so, like, you think that it hurts the brand by changing it, right? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Okay. What about, like, this idea, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole much, but we, we may have talked about it, we may not. Facebook changed the name to Meta. What's your opinion of that? I can see Carson, you're not a fan. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, what? why are you not a fan of that? I mean, you're talking like a billion users worldwide. Like, I'm, people are always going to call it Facebook, at least for a decade or more, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think changing the name to Meta hurts it even more than it's already hurt. Like, it makes me want to use it even less, you know? I think what they're trying to do is rebrand it for the next generation of kids coming up. So, when my son, who's about to be six, when he's like a teenager, oh, they'll be hanging out on Meta. That's what I think the company's hoping for. But what you got? I thought they, I think they changed it because they're trying to get into virtual reality. They, that's, that's what I'm talking about. They're trying to, they're trying to, I guess, go in a different direction, you know, than, than this traditional news media feed. They want to be, they want to be something different in the future. I don't know. Like, the, if you ask anybody else, though, like, the main reason they're changing their, their name is because they have a lot of bad press and bad PR. Um, they've they've had been involved in a lot of scandals over the past several years. So. Yeah, but going back to these this idea of branding, yeah, these characters that, that these brands establish do mean something. Like uh, uh, Tony the Tiger, right? I mean, that's that's like been around for decades. And Ronald McDonald. I don't see Ronald McDonald that much anymore. Do you guys still notice Ronald? Is he still out there much? No? Yeah, I just saw some. They got rid of him because of the, the Killer Clowns. The Killer Clowns, Bad Association, yeah. 
So, guys, that's terrible. How about the planter's peanut? The, you know, these characters, there's something to this. When I was a kid, Joe, Joe Campbell was the cigarette guy, right? Mm-hmm. And they quit doing that because it was they felt like it was marketing to kids, you know. So, But the reason companies make these characters is it gives somebody an association, a positive association. That's what they're looking for. What marketers are trying to do is to evoke an emotion. Usually it's, la- it's humor or laughter or some type of emotional response like sadness. You know, they want you to feel not sad, but they want to, to pull at your heartstrings, you know. So, like, we're entering the season, you know, the holiday season, and you'll see a ton of commercials. Some of them will be funny, and some of them will be like, you know, Hallmark moments, you know. Dad, I'm home, you know. So, like, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that like, you know, it, it kind of makes you feel this family moment and kind of makes you pull on your heartstrings a little bit. That's what they want because... Um, if you study psychology, if you have an emotional response when information is being re- uh, presented, you're like 10 times more likely to remember it. Uh, so that emotional response kind of crystallizes that into your brain a little bit better. Um, if you go to a restaurant and have an ordinary experience, there's nothing, there's nothing to remember. It's not memorable. But if you have a wonderful experience, uh, it really stands out. I had a waitress at Texas on Friday. Her name's Mary Ann. You know Mary Ann? Bro, Mary Beth. Mary Beth, that's what it is. Bro, I swear to God, she makes me so mad. Why? It's just like, bro. (laughs) Here we go. The dark side. Listen, I'm not going to keep remaking your food if you got it wrong on the ticket. I got you. Come up and say that the food is wrong. I got you. I'm going to ask you to show me the ticket. Gotcha. After about the third time that day you mess up, you're done. Yeah. You're done. I'm, I'm glad you shared that. From the customer perspective, I had a great experience with Mary Beth. Is that her name? Mary Beth or Mary Ann? Okay. So, like, that prompted me to want to go back to Texas, but I realized behind the scenes that I didn't see any of that stuff going on, so I didn't know. Um, But in any case, these companies are trying to evoke an emotion, trying to uh, keep people, like, in their psyche. So what does – does it make sense to you that emblematic emblematic brands represent required – I'm sorry – modernizing to keep them relevant in the minds of their customers? So – um, does it make sense that we modernize these these characters? Does does that make sense to you guys, or not? Yeah. What's an exa- another example of a of a brand character that has kind of been modernized over the years? Anything come to mind? Well, Budweiser did the frogs, and then now it's the Yeah. Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. That's. When I was a kid, I used to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Did anybody grow up with that stuff? Yeah, I was an 80s kid. But now I look at, I loved Ninja Turtles back in the day, but I look at them now and I think the toys look cheesy. You know, I'm like, what is this? They look terrible to, to me. You know, like I'm used to the old school stuff. So, um, Didn't these firms risk alienating older, buyer, buy, older buyers who were comfortable with the older designs? So that is a business risk. If we change what people know, will that not create issues you know like i'm thinking of since it's the holiday season coming up you're going to see coke put out what commercial during the holiday season what a, something else the um yep with the, yeah with you, the, with the, um, you got it yeah, yeah. you know the train the polar bears that's it yeah so the coke and the polar bears right does that commercial speak to anybody, really? It's cool. Not really. Uh, 
Yeah, but that's kind of like an ex expected thing, you know. It's kind of like Christmas Story. Does anybody watch Christmas Story on Christmas Day? Ralphie, you shoot your eye out, kid? No? Yeah. You, you do? That and Elf, yeah. So several popular mascots are missing from, this, uh, from the video that it shot, including Geico, the Gecko, um, and there's some others. We don't, we've already talked about these, but yeah, I think the Gecko is very successful. Um, I don't really have an issue with the Gecko. I think he's uh, successful you know, in what he does. So, These are some examples of target markets, um, markets for Marriott Hotel brand, and Marriott has an umbrella of different, I guess, hotels and types uh, under that banner. So... The Fairfield Inn, I'm not going to talk about the pricing as much, but they target economizing business and leisure travel. So if I'm going on a quick you know, getaway, not looking for something expensive, that is my market. I'm not going to read every one of these in the middle, but let's go to the Ritz at the, the very end. Senior executives and entrepreneurs looking for a unique luxury and personalized experience. That's what the Ritz-Carlton is for. Somebody that wants to go first class. You know, Has anybody ever stayed at a really expensive hotel before? I don't think I have. Like, most of my stuff is like somewhere in the middle. You know, it's not. I don't know. What's what's considered a low end hotel? Like, but yeah, I've never stayed there, for example. But most of my stuff is kind of what you would see in the middle here. You know, courtyard and stuff like that. Uh, I think we stayed at Marriott when we went to Virginia, and that was a nice place. So. But yeah, the Ritz. You're gonna, you know, you're paying more for that experience, but you're gonna. They target that niche customer that's looking for that, that distinction. You know, the, we're staying at a nice place, and these are the expectations at a nice place. I'll take it back. I did stay at the Hilton. I don't know if this is classified as really nice, but we stayed at the Hilton in Charlotte right beside the convention center, and that was a very nice hotel. I was, like, very surprised. That's the that's time I saw Stan Lee in the elevator. Did we talk about that? I didn't tell you that story. I saw, yeah, so I actually was at the hotel beside the Comic-Con Convention Center, and I'm actually going to meet Stan Lee that day, and I went down, I was going to the elevator, I went down, when the elevator door opens, Stan Lee was standing right in front of me, true story, it was just him and like his handler, and I was just like, oh my God, what am I seeing, you know, I was so shocked that I'm, I'm here like seeing Stan Lee, I'm trying to find the picture real quick, I got it. But I didn't, I didn't want to be that guy that was like, oh, my God, Stan Lee, let me get a selfie, you know, because this guy was like 90 years old at the time. But uh, I ended up going to see him later at the convention and did get a picture with him. So this was about three years before he died or so. So I did get to speak to him briefly and talk to him and uh, thanked him for uh, his contribution to, uh, to pop culture and literature, actually. I mean... A lot of people not comic books, but there's a lot of good writing and uh, character creation and development that goes into it. So, uh, anyway, that was uh, just blew my mind when that happened. So, all right. So, what is marketing concept and relationship building? I like that term, relationship building. You know, um, if you ever meet a really good salesperson, they spend a lot of time developing relationships. They go around and they're, they're members of the chamber of commerce. They go to events. They go to other businesses. They shake hands very political in how they approach things. And it's because they know that their customer base is within this community. And in order to really draw in customers, I've got to be a part of this community and meet people, talk to people, let people see me, talk to me, feel comfortable with me. And so when they need that insurance policy or they need this mortgage or they need this, this banking service or whatever it may be, they know who to call. I'm that person. And so uh, we're going to talk about a few more things. Environmental scanning. 
Target Market and Washington Company have one and explain the four types of competitive advantage, provide examples of each. So what do we mean by environmental scanning? What does that mean? Environmental scanning doesn't have to do with anything related to the environment as far as like you know carbon or anything like that. We're talking about business from a business perspective. Kinda. Um, so environmental scanning is where managers will scan the environment to see what their competitors are doing, what the, the business landscape is, what's selling, what's not selling, what employment is, is doing, um, as far as what, how's the economy doing. They have to keep their finger on the pulse of all these things. And so if unemployment is massively spiking, a business needs to prepare for that and say, well, you know, our business could take an impact because people are going to have less disposable income because unemployment is spiking. These are things that a business manager and leader need to need to understand and understand how their business falls into that and how they can mitigate it or manage it. One great example is during the pandemic, a lot of businesses closed down temporarily, but some of them said, well, we can't afford to close our shop and not have revenue. So we're going to do like a sidewalk business where you know, you order to go, or I even had some stores that I know would, would have sidewalk sales, where we're not letting people in the store, we're closed, but we invite you to come and shop some of our merch outside, you know, and we'll do it like that. And so that's getting creative. That's doing that. Or some businesses would do, this is a great one, there's a local jewelry store in Mount Olive that would do a lot of Facebook Lives. Hey, everybody, we know that we're not doing, you know, coming in the store at the moment, but we want to show you our latest merchandise. You know, if you want this, you know, make a comment. This is item number D1. You know, it's yours, you know. So that's the kind of stuff you have to do. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stuff you have to do to get creative to not let your business go under, you know. Um, most small businesses, they cannot withstand an extended period of no revenue. They just can't. Like, they're month to month just like households are. They need that revenue to pay their bills, and without that revenue, their, their doors close. What you got? I used to work. I don't really know about it, but it's the general store and um, yeah, I don't know what's that. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's over by the efficient store or the Easy yeah. Tackle. Yeah, yeah. But um, they, I worked there like that was my first job, but then I left, and then I came back for like during the COVID time, and because of COVID, they had to shut down like two of their rooms move it over to their um, shipping department and then they had to cut down a lot of their merchandise and for like weeks they had like this huge room like with toys and clothes and everything 75% off just to get it out. Right. Man, yeah. Uh, that's a big tip that I can give you. If you ever decide to go into business, uh, especially a, a high overhead business where you've got to pay rent and things like that. You want to, um, I guess, put back as much cash as you can as a reserve in case something does happen. Um, and same, like a, I keep talking about the parallels between business and personal life. Um, if, if your personal life, if you have a disruption, you know, like what if there's a catastrophic illness and you're out of work for a month or two, what's gonna happen to your finances? You know, th those are things that you need to plan for. and. Um, the older I get, the more I start to think of, you know, I have to think through things in terms of my kids, you know, like what would happen if there's a natural disaster, you know, and we can't, we can't use money or we can't use debits for a week. Do I need to have cash on hand or do I need to have some basic food on hand and things like that? Cause my baby boy likes to eat. Let me tell you. So, all right.
So consumer purchase decision-making process, we have to look at the culture, social, uh, social individual, and psychological, psychological fact, uh, factors that affect all these steps. And this is the decision-making process, kind of like the funnel that we talked about earlier. And so remember those um, pestle things I talked about in a previous chapter where we're looking at the political, environmental, remember that, sociological, technological? Kind of remember, maybe a little bit. So these are, those, these are those similar factors that are the lens through which consumers view products and services and have to make a buying decision on that. So the first thing at the top of the list is need recognition. I need, some, I need this in my life, you know, and need is a very uh, subjective thing. Um, I classify things as needs and wants. But if you want something, you know, you, you may say you need it. You know, I need it because I want it, whatever. So I need this or I want this. That's the step number one. And then you go into an information search. And this is the great thing about the Internet is that we have just so much information at, at our fingertips. How many of you guys read reviews for almost every product that you buy online? Everybody does that? Me too. Um, do you guys, like, how much research do you do before you make a purchase decision? Do you say a little bit or a ton? A ton. ton? Yeah. I read a ton of Amazon reviews, and then I'll go off Amazon and Google it and try to read other reviews. Do you do that too? Anybody ever watch a YouTube video about your product? You do that too? Yeah. Yeah, you can actually make a decent, like, YouTube gig just um, reviewing products. You know, like, okay, I got this particular blender in. This is it. This is it. And just throw a video up on it because people will watch that. They want to know about this blender, right? So, yeah, I do a ton of research. So I'm doing the information search, and that is going to either validate my decision to purchase this or it's going to give me kind of pause, you know. Um, if you've got a product that's got 98 good reviews but two really bad reviews, how do you view that? Like, I'll see a product, good product, great product, love the product, then I'll see worst product ever, you know, or something like that, you know, avoid. Like, do, how, how does that, like, impact you guys when you see stuff like that? Yeah, well, I look at the consensus, like, if 98% of the people said this is a good product, you know, I look at it, if it's, if it's four or five stars and it's like 80% of the stars are four and up, I feel pretty good. I've got a four out of five chance that I'm going to have a good experience, you know. And the thing about Amazon is if you have a bad experience, they take stuff back pretty easily. I bought a laptop one time, and there was a black line going down the center of the screen. It was like some defect or something. So I said, hey, you know, it's not going to work. So I hit the return. They, and I said, do you want your money back or you want another one? I said, you know, I'd like another one. I, I mean, I want those laptop. They sent me another one, like, instantly. I got it, like, a day or two later, and I hadn't even sent, sent the old one back yet. So I did send it back. But. So now we've done our information search. We evaluate alternatives. Is there anything else out there that will fulfill that need or want, maybe at a cheaper price? I recently bought my wife a jewelry box for Christmas, and I can, I can confess that to you because she's not going to listen to this podcast. But if you did listen to this podcast, you would find out what you got for Christmas. So there you go, honey. But anyway, so yeah, jewelry box. It's a nice one. And I did a ton of research onto this thing. I like looked at all these possibilities. The one she picked out was like 330 bucks, And I found almost the exact identical one for like 250 And it's a lot of money for a jewelry box, but she's, she's had one for a long time. And then she's graduating to this one. And the old one's going to go to probably my oldest daughter. So, But yeah, I looked at probably 20 alternatives to, you know, to see, you know, and I read a lot of reviews 
And that all went into my decision-making purchase, you know, a uh, uh, decision-making uh, process. So then ultimately I make a purchase. And then, then we get to post-purchase behavior. We evaluate, you know, has anybody ever had buyer's remorse? You buy something, you either feel guilty or I shouldn't have spent that money or I need the money for something else. Does that happen? Yep. Um, I hate to keep, keep picking on you, Peyton, but at Walmart, we would have customers bring back merchandise that they'd just been sitting on for a little while. They kind of use it as like a pawn shop. They bring back merchandise. They may have had it for a little while, and it's like, okay, well, satisfaction guaranteed. I want my money back, you know. So, yeah, but post-purchase behavior, um, all these steps in the process, the seller is interested in that. They want to know um, what your needs are. They want to know how you evaluate their products. They want to know what alternatives you're looking at. They want to know what prompted you to purchase from them. And then they want to know what your reaction is. How many of you guys buy something online nowadays and get solicited for a, re for a review? I get solicits probably weekly. Hey, you bought this, this jewelry box, so now tell me, you know, uh, what your thoughts are. You know, write a review. You know, anytime I buy something from a company direct, I get solicited for, you know, some type of uh, uh, review. They want that so they can help validate their product to other customers. So any questions on this consumer purchase decision making process? This is kind of, you know, why is it important to know stuff like this? Yeah, it actually it strongly lends to the knowledge you need to operate your business well. You need to be knowledgeable on every aspect of this process. You, you, know, you can have the best product or service in the world, but it doesn't matter if your customer doesn't need it or want it. It doesn't matter what the product or service is. If, if your customer doesn't need or want it, why is that? Have you created an environment where they feel like they do need it or want it, right? So, like... You know, every once in a while, I watch, I watch several different news channels, but on one of them, it's all the time, like, advertising, like, either insurance or, um, how about, this is a good one. You remember that little button that, that elderly people can wear that if I fall in and I can't get up? You remember that commercial? Yeah. So, like, the, if I create that, that's a great product or service, but, you know, where's, where's the need for that? To all of us, there may or may not be a lot of need for that, but... If I go tell, you know, Mr. Bob over here, Mr. Bob, you got to buy this for your mother because, you know, she's living alone and if she falls down, you know, in the middle of the night and is hurt, she can just push this button and then 911's coming to help her. Don't you need don't you want your mom to be safe? You know, don't you want her to be okay? Boom, you're creating that demand by selling that narrative. And that's what those commercials do. They sell that narrative. So, you've got to be able to do that kind of stuff. All right. So forms of consumer market segmentation. Segmentation is how things are broken down. So these general forms are demographic, geographic, psychographic, benefit, and volume. So just each one of these demographics, age, education, gender, income, race, social class, household size. Um, and your product needs to be like pinpointed on each, triangulated, I guess is a better way. So you'll look at the demographic information and then you'll look at the geographic, and then you'll look at the psychographic, and then you'll look at the benefit, and then that last one is volume. And your customer lies right here, like pinpoint. That's, that's kind of how you're gonna evaluate where your customer lies. And so, you know, what's a product that, that a, okay, we're gonna use one that's pretty common, fidget spinners. Anybody ever play with a fidget spinner? or fidgets in general? 
you, you can admit it. You've got a fidget in your household, right? Mm -hmm. One of those little. What do you think of those little pop bubble things? I don't. What are they? We have so many of those yeah. in Texas. I like them. You like them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My kids love these little. I don't get it. They're just like you pop the bubble through, you flip it over, you pop it. Why is that cool? I don't understand it. You know. So. Yeah. I actually own a fidget spinner that spins. I think that's cool, you know, and I'll mess with it, you know, every once in a while. I think it's neat. But I don't get the little bubble things. But guess what? I'm not that demographic they're looking for, right? They're looking for what, what demographic are they looking for from a, a demographic standpoint? Probably 5 to 12, 13-year-olds maybe. I think after uh, teenagers are too cool for that stuff, right? Okay, so there you go. So would that be a psychographic, right? So that's, you know, you're looking for a specific age. You're looking for a specific type, you know, personality type. You're looking for uh, geographic. So, you know, where, where can we sell this? Where is it going to be hot and popular? <laughs> so as marketers go through, they determine the answer to these questions. <coughs> and then how do we market to kids? You know, if we, if we find our answer is, you know, five-year-olds to, to 13-year-olds or 12-year-olds, this is our market. How do we market to kids? We get kids to play with it on commercial. Get kids to play with it on YouTube and post it up there, right? Yeah. Brilliant. That's how you do it. You know, who's the number one YouTuber paid for, for paid content? Number one YouTuber for paid content. Oh, Who? Ryan's Toy World, right? Yeah, my Ryan's World, yeah. I couldn't believe it. How much does Ryan make a year? It's it's crazy. I couldn't believe it. Over twenty million a year. But he's got he's got the YouTube streaming. He's got merchandise going. He actually had like a TV show. I don't know if that's still going or not. I mean, kids got it going on. But what is the kid? He's young. He's, he's I'm saying he's like ten or twelve years old now, maybe. You know, but he's been around for several years. You know. I think so. How young is he? He's, he's young. Child, Ryan, yeah. You don't know Ryan? No, I don't know Ryan. He's a child. So, Ryan, okay, so I don't know all the details, but I'll tell you briefly. So years ago now, probably I would say six to eight years ago, Ryan's dad said, we're going to make a YouTube channel, and it's going to be Ryan opening toys and playing with toys. Kids love it. They still love it. My kids still like watching and unboxing and playing with toys. And it blew up, and he started making millions of dollars, you know, streaming. So they branched off into toy line and merchandise and TV shows and kids killing it, you know. But, you know, if I wanted to sell fidget spinners, yeah, if I send Ryan a fidget spinner package and he gets like a 1,000 fidget spinners, he's open to playing with it, yeah, that's going to sell my product very well. So, yeah, you want to figure out how can I get my product, you know, in front of the eyes of the kids so my, my little boy say, Daddy, I want this for Christmas. How do you do that? A lot of different ways, you know. Right now, I've got two or three catalogs that came in the mail that are from Amazon, from Target, from Walmart, that are toy catalogs. Do you guys get these? Yeah. yeah? Tell us about Christmas wish list stuff. What if we got our stuff in there? You know, what, you know or um, doing these targeted ads on YouTube and Facebook, you know, like, or TikTok is probably the thing for younger kids now. So, all right, we'll take a time out here on the forms of consumer market segmentation, how it's broke down. We'll pick it back up on uh, Thursday and wrap up Chapter 11. If you need me in the meantime, drop me an email. Miss Spence, don't forget about uh, Miss Sullivan. All right, guys. See you then.